to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again, so this must be Nonprofit Lowdown. All right, y'all, hold on to your hat. I don't like to use the words like epic, hero, legend, lightly, but all very appropriate in this case. Today, my guest is the one, the only, Miss Iris Chen. For those of you in New York, she needs no introduction, but for those of you who don't know who she is, which is crazy, you're about to meet her. She is a, I don't know, general superhero, longtime social justice warrior in New York, right now entrepreneur and doing lots of things. So we will hear all about Iris, but she, she needs no introduction. Welcome, Iris. Great to be here. I'm excited (laughs) to engage with you. Okay, Iris, you've had a long and illustrious career here in New York, particularly in the education space. Tell me briefly about your, your career. So where should I start? I have spent most of my life in education, particularly educational equity. I got my start with Teach for America back in 1990, which is when Teach for America got founded. You were one of the OG members. We call ourselves OG. In fact, we just had a gathering, which I missed earlier this week. There were about 480 of us, what we call core members, who committed two years of our early career to teaching in classrooms across the U.S. So that brought me to New York. I'm actually right here in Brooklyn, where I taught fourth and fifth grade. I taught, it's a two-year commitment, I ended up teaching a third year. So that really, I thought it was going to be a two-year commitment. I had every intention to go back to law school. I thought I might end up being an attorney working in civil rights. And here I am 30 years later, still working largely in education. And civil rights. And and actually, I did go back and get IIJD civil rights. Yeah. And actually, I am involved technically in a volunteer capacity with a couple of civil rights organizations, which I feel as passionately about as my day job, which is obviously related to civil rights. So after I taught for three years, fourth and fifth grade in Brooklyn, I did a fellowship feeling the need to, it was a fellowship in public policy, the Coral Fellows Program, really felt the need to understand at a higher altitude, the various forces that were leading to what was playing out in my little classroom of 34 children and feeling the need to have more agency over some of what was landing in the lives of my students. So I did that, and then I ended up going to Teach for America, the organization, on staff as we were building out the enterprise around a very bold vision. We were still all in our early 20s. I spent about four years leading the national program. Again, you know, we were all trying to figure it out. It became very obvious to me at the time that while we had a big vision, we had no shortage of passion and purpose that we could probably all benefit a little bit from more management skills. I never would have thought that I would end up in business school, but that's what I did to really arm myself with more skills and knowledge to help take the big ideas and help bring them to life. And so I ended up going back to school. I tagged on my initial idea of law school. I did a JD MBA. That was four years. I then spent a little bit of time in the private sector, mm-hmm. just honing my skills. I lasted all of a couple months before I got called back to this work. I was in Boston working with McKinsey, our founder of Teach for America, Wendy Kopp, called me back to lead the growth of Teach for America in New York. Mm-hmm. That coincided with 
a really exciting time for New York Public Schools when Mayor Bloomberg and Jill Klein had just begun to unveil their big plans for education reform in the city. And so I came back to do that. That took me all of maybe my first decade and a half <laughs> since college. And since then, I've been, I would say, doing multiple sector work. I worked in the public sector, worked for the Chancellor of New York City Schools a couple of years ago, helped start new nonprofits, all roughly in the space. Mm-hmm. And I'm right now helping to build out a relatively new nonprofit called Wildflower Schools. Mm-hmm. We are a national network of nonprofit and public, what we call micro schools. So they're schools of 20 to 30 children, typically, Mm -hmm. that are based on the Montessori pedagogy and that are diverse by design. Mm -hmm. The idea is for every neighborhood to have a great school to send their children to and one that's nested in the community that is culturally relevant and, and culturally sensitive. And that is also going to, of course, deliver on great educational leadership outcomes. Okay, I have to tell you, and I hope it won't embarrass you, but I've always considered you to be kind of a personal hero and mentor of mine, simply because there really aren't that many Asian American leaders in the education space. I would say probably overall in the nonprofit space, but being that I was in the education space, it's what I knew the best. And so actually before we started recording, I was like, I can't really think of a ton of other Asian American female leaders out there. And so I'm just wondering... From your perspective, is that something that you ever thought about as you were coming up in your career? You know, I get asked that, and and I would say it always trips me up. And maybe, you know, I think I have evolved my thinking on that, actually. So right out of college, my intention was to serve in, you know, Asian American communities. In fact, I changed my major in college. Uh So I grew up, we were Asian American. I was born and raised in the U.S., my parents were immigrants in Washington. They came to Washington, D.C. I, we grew up largely English only. Back mm-hmm. then, there was very little understanding of bilingualism. It was all about assimilation mm-hmm. and a fear that if I hung on too much to the language of my parents and the culture, that I would have a hard time mm-hmm. in the United States. And so I literally, believe it or not, had to take a huge amount, percentage of my credits in high school and college learning Chinese, the language. Mm-hmm. And I ended up spending a year... Eight, well, eight months in China during my junior year in college mm-hmm. and came back and changed my major. My major had been English and I changed it to East Asian studies, mm-hmm. which also included Asian American studies. And my every intention was right after graduation to serve the Asian American community. I actually requested when I was part of Teach for America or embarking on TFA, we were able to write down where we wanted to go geographically. And I requested to be able to teach in a Chinatown. And we didn't place, we didn't have placements back then for new Teach for America teachers. So I ended up teaching in a predominantly African-American community, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, right now called Vinegar Hill. It was mm-hmm. not called that back then. Yeah. Now it's, it's kind of a bougie. fancy part. Now it's yeah. a little bit of fancy part of town. But I, I guess if I were to step back and think about it, like the way I think about this is we are all, we all have unique everything, right? We Not just unique skills and unique talents, but we have unique sensibilities, unique mm-hmm. passions. And the way I think about it is we need to make sure we don't squander any of it. And part of that is our ethnic identity and our racial identity to the mm-hmm. extent that that brings us certain opportunities and access mm-hmm. and responsibility that a person that doesn't have that ethnic and or racial background might bring to the table. And so I don't want to squander that. And that's just how I think about it. And on one level, I feel like the inequities in our country 
impact to a greater degree, and I know this is controversial, the African-American community in this country than the Asian-American community. Mm-hmm. And I know that's, that's, that is not, and I, I know people might disagree on that. And as I think about how I'm committing my time, like I can't say, you know, I should more be committing my time, for example, to the Asian-American community necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. It's like me just thinking how to best deploy. The other thing is I do think in today's day and age, I think we're at a really important and unprecedented time with the role that, I mean, race, you had asked me earlier about what feels like an increased emphasis or re-emphasis on race and inclusion and diversity, certainly in the nonprofit space, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously politically today. I think being an Asian American, I'm rambling now, but I think a couple of things. One, I, I have come to really feel strongly, and I didn't believe this 30 years ago, that it's so critical that leadership behind whatever the important initiative is be comprised in substantial part of people who are proximity to the issue. I really believe that. And that's not to say that people who don't have sort of inborn proximity to the issue mm-hmm. should not be around the table. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's really important. So that's led me to think that the both the leadership and the, and the folks that are making decisions on anything in a nonprofit leadership levels, whatever it is, really needs to better mirror mm-hmm. the particular community that that nonprofit is operating with and mm-hmm. for. I also think that things are so racially charged today. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm probably moving into controversial territory. And I think that as an Asian American, it's been really interesting because on the one hand, in a, t- a way that I haven't seen before, I'm being invited into conversations that are viewed to be conversations being held by people of color, mm-hmm. which I would have thought as an Asian American, that's what I should be. I will say for a good part of my life, though, that I have been more perceived sometimes to be not a person of color. I know that sounds crazy, but more like I've already been in a room where people have said, wow, it's interesting that we're all white in this room, you know? And I'm like, well, what about me? Yeah. So I think there's a certain role and privilege right now that I feel where I can help mediate Mm. and be in both rooms without Mm -hmm. losing sight of like my core beliefs, right? And not compromising. I don't want to be a chameleon. Right. But I do think I do have felt really welcome, even in today's very divided climate, to be uh-huh. in both rooms. Yeah. And it is both rooms. It's separate rooms now very often. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't feel like I'm really answering your question, but I do think it's a really privileged position. Yeah. I think it's particularly important today that I don't squander yeah. the position I've been given. And I would say it, it is unfortunate that there aren't more mm-hmm. Asian American leaders. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. I don't feel I walked into this work, nonprofit, driven largely by my Asian American identity, to be honest. I mm-hmm. was driven more by like, I had certain values and core beliefs that I wanted to be seen true in our world, in our country. Mm-hmm. And I felt the need to like tackle them. And that's what brought me to this work. So I grew up in San Francisco where everybody is Chinese American. So I didn't actually realize that like being Asian in this country was considered a minority. Yeah. But it wasn't until I went to boarding school that I was like, oh, I'm not like everybody else. And from that point forward, I felt very strongly aligned to being a person of color because it was like all of the kids who are not white hung out together and then all the white kids hung out together. And so in a way, it's sort of the opposite for me, which is like it's very shocking to me that people might perceive that I'm not a person of color because I so strongly identify with being 
not a person of color and like not a white person. Yeah. And I, I talk about this all the time, but I had a staff member in her exit interview say something to the effect of like, well, you know, because the leadership in this organization is all white. And I was like, what? Like, but, yeah, I, I didn't get it at yeah. all. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that you're right. There is like a privilege and a power of being able to move between both worlds. Yeah, I do. I mean, and then, you know, I was also, okay, so I don't necessarily love this labeling, but we use black and brown. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well then am I yellow? You know? I don't, yeah. So, right. Like, I don't think I want to call myself yellow yeah. for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, and, and so Teach for America has what I think one of the most critical things that has happened in the last 10 years, we have something called the collective. Uh-huh which is a body of our alumni of color in the, who have gone through the Teach America program. It's an incredible force of people. I think it's play, and we have, you know, local collectives in every one of the regions where TFA has a presence, which is almost every state at this point. And then nationally, there's a national advisory board, of which I'm a part. And, you know, it feels like such a privilege to be in that room, you mm-hmm. know, it's just because, and we've struggled even at Teach for America with thinking about where do Asian Americans fit in? Mm. Not so much as the leadership, but where do they fit in when we think about students and when we think about our priority placements and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where it's like, on a student level, I don't feel like we've as much felt, to be honest, like we haven't talked as much about Asian American communities as being one of our priority, mm-hmm. what we call, you know, teacher placement mm-hmm. sites. But at the same time, when we have broader conversations about diversity and equity and inclusion, Asian Americans like me are included in that room, you yeah. know? So I think we haven't fully worked through all that. But, yeah. but I will say it, yeah, I mean, I just think it's been really incredible to see in my opinion, the elevation. I actually think we're seeing a lot greater presence in general people of color in the nonprofit leadership space. Mm-hmm. The Asian Americans, I haven't thought specifically of, but now that you bring it up, I'm not sure I see as much of that, you yeah. know? But do you have a thought of why or? I have like two guesses. At yeah. It. The first guess is that for a lot of Asian children, there's a pressure to follow a, a certain professional path, be it you you were one of the good ones. You went to law school, right? Yeah. But the the nonprofit sector isn't necessarily seen as a viable path to wealth. And so I think there's that pressure. And then I think there's also the pressure of as an Asian person, we are not necessarily taught to be activists and socially engaged. And the nature of the work is that you have to be, you have to be radical and you have to be willing to make people uncomfortable. And and even like my parents who were both born in this country, I mean, I I popped out of the womb like this. I was loud. I did not get the memo about (laughs) being quiet. And even then my, my parents being very Americanized were still like, shh, like you're being too loud. You're being too pushy. You're being too bossy. And I, again, I don't know if it's like being a girl or being Asian, probably a combination of both. So that's kind of my hypothesis, but I have no idea. I'm so puzzled because on the one hand, I don't know. I feel like I think about all the nonprofits I've been part of, and I feel like there are plenty of Asian American representation at in the organization. Mm -hmm. But as I think about perhaps not leading the organizations Mm -hmm. as much. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I wonder if there is some sort of, I wonder if it has to do with actually the actual, beyond just sort of the way we might have been sort of brought up in the way of, you know, the pressure to do certain things. Mm-hmm. 
and or the pressure not to be too socially active or what have you. I wonder if there's also like a leadership, like is there some ceiling there? Yeah. Well, it's actually quite well documented, you know? the, the bamboo ceiling, as they call it. Is that what they call it? I haven't yeah, heard that it's, before. Um, yeah. That statistically, and it was done in Silicon Valley, but statistically Asian women are the least likely to be promoted to leadership positions because yeah. even though they're viewed as highly competent, they're not yeah. viewed as having quote unquote leadership skill. Like, yeah. And I think, so I think that to me suggests that there's an invisibility, whether yeah. it's like the poverty of Asian American children in this yeah. city or the invisibility of being an Asian leader. And I think that's true. And, and I also have a hard time with the idea of Asianness because it's such a monolith. Like we yeah. can't, like the experience of, Bangladeshi American compared to a Korean American compared to like a Hmong American is all very different. Yeah. And we have like nothing in common. Yeah. And how much, when you were saying about like perception, how much do you think is sort of a perception of Asian? And it's interesting, you differentiate men, women. That is, Mm -hmm. I need to think more about that. Like, do I know a lot of Asian men, for example, then, right? Yeah. And then how much of it is you feel where Asian women, Asian American women, are showing up in a certain way because in terms of any, I'm making this up. I don't even have a form theory around it yet, but Mm -hmm. like in terms of showing up and being more reluctant to be, for example, more assertive and claiming leadership. I have to say, I I actually think it's the opposite. I actually think it it might be easier for Asian women in a certain way, like leaving aside Silicon Valley. Yeah. Because I think. um, I'm sorry, I'm still using Asia. I know we're already using it blanket, but keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Well, so asterisk, we know it's a blanket term. But I think that Asian women, if you consider like the out-marriage rates of Asian women, Asian women are somehow more viewed as socially acceptable by white society. And I think Asian men, shout out to the Asian men, like I, I think that the perception of Asian men in this country yeah. is incredibly insulting. Like it's, it's emasculating. They're not viewed as being masculine or assertive. They're like the geeky computer nerd or whatever it is. And it wasn't like, I would even say it wasn't until like the last decade that I saw pictures of Asian men in like a desirable way in, yeah. in the media. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Asian women, there was always that weird like exoticism, yeah. which yeah. is super. Oh gross. gosh, it's a whole different yeah. topic. <laughs> We're not going to talk about exoticism I, with Asian women, but, yeah. but we will talk about it at some point because it's a, an interesting topic. Okay, I'm going to switch tacks a little bit here. Yeah. So, given your career in nonprofits and given your, you know, your your executive roles and leadership roles in many of the organizations, what do you think are some of your biggest lessons learned in leadership? Oh, gosh. I would say number one, well, in no particular order, but one would be the how we do things Mm -hmm. matter as much as the what. Mm. I used to be one of those leaders who would be like, outcomes, 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 right? Right. Like the the end justifies the means as long as the means are ethical. Yeah. And I've just learned, and it's funny, both my own experience as a leader, but also to be honest, watching other leaders. Like how we do things has such an impact in two ways, both on the outcome itself, even though we might think they're bifurcated, and it has a broader impact well beyond the outcome itself. And I think leaders who, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, have are in positional power and have a huge influence, 
have a responsibility to make sure that how they do things are both modeling, right? Like the way things should be done in terms of treating people well and, mm-hmm. and taking into account other important values and just the impact that it can have on the person and even their emotions. Mm-hmm. And to tell you just one story, I don't like to admit this, but you know, there was one person on my team that was very talented and I was sort of, I had entrusted with a ton of responsibility. It was one of the turnaround situations and I was tough with her. And the way I think about it is like, you know what? I'm not tough with the people unless they can take it. And for mm-hmm. me, it's a gift to them. You know, it's right, like, right, right, right. and people I don't, you know, I am not invested in. Mm-hmm. I don't spend any time on them. And they're not going to hear the direct feedback because I, I sort of have not decided not to invest in them. It takes my energy too to be tough. I don't right. like being tough. And so this particular person, I was tough with her. Direct feedback. I thought I was coaching, mentoring her and supporting her. One day we sat down. We had it all out. And she was like, do you know that every night I go home to my husband and I cry? I cry because that's how you make me feel. And I was like, wow, you know? And so I think just understanding, you know, the monumental impact that we can have based on how others perceive us, you know, whether it be our positional power or they might feel respect for us. And so everything we say has that amplified effect or Mm -hmm. we think it's amplified. Mm -hmm. And you know, and how many days have somebody said something to you and like that you really, somebody you really cared about? I can think of that, you know, mm-hmm. where it was just devastating for me. Yeah. And, you know, even though they might have said it in a killer slip up or they might not have exactly meant it just so or it might have been well intended. And so I think that really just that level of responsibility mm-hmm. and understanding the effect that we have, every word we say, every yep. turn of phrase. And I would say, so that was like one big thing. The second is just, and I think we all know this, but like, you know, doing the best to thinking about our role as really nurturing and unleashing the power and talents that people already have, right? Mm -hmm. Versus trying to control them or to, but I can name a couple of times that were lessons for me where somebody I was working with you know, I felt they were struggling and then they got out from under me and, or even the organization, whatever it was, and their next gig, they are thriving. And that tells me, okay, you know, so I think those are more people things. I think in terms of like non-people stuff, it's just the importance of having a North Star. It's challenging. I mean, leadership by definition is hard. You know, everything Mm -hmm. we're all setting out to do is hard. Mm -hmm. We're all nonprofits by design, by nature, are out there to solve a problem that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Yeah. And so I think just constantly grounding in like the why of what we're here and mm-hmm. the North Star is really important. Mm-hmm. These are all things I'm sure you have known much longer than me. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we all learn it because I think in my earlier days as ED, I, I thought my value to the organization was my ability to get stuff done. Yeah. And and I think that's true up to a point and that they're there comes a pivot point at which your value to the organization is about helping other people to do their best. And yeah. I, I think I was a little slow to that party because yeah. I was like, just like, let me do it. Yeah. I know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I don't know. It, it's hard because I think if, if you yourself, I myself place so much value in my own self-perception about like, I can get stuff yeah. done what, who am I, if that's not the thing that I'm good at anymore or that I should be doing anymore? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I would have answered this question very different, like 10 years, 20 years ago, right? It would have been more about like what I learned about management in terms of just like, and strategy and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. it's just, it's been really humbling to like these other lessons, I think. Yeah. And it requires retraining yourself too. But I think what you're talking about is sort of a paradigm shift in terms of how do we truly 
contribute the most endearing change and consistently with what we value. Yeah. So, and I still have to constantly restrain myself, you yeah. know, and I have to be also be very careful about not being binary about it. it's not all or nothing. Yeah. I wonder how you would answer this. So I, I think speaking about Asian-ness, yeah. like one of the things that I've considered about my own leadership is that my parents, they're loving people, they're supportive people, but like, you know, growing up, like they're, we're not demonstrative people. Like I don't, like we're not huggy. Like we don't say I love you all the time. Like there's not, yeah. you're going to go to school, you're going to get good grades because that's what you're supposed to do. And like, that's it, you know, whatever. And so I think I came up with that idea and kind of treated my staff that way. Like I wasn't overly like super supportive and I'm here for you. Like it was supportive, but it wasn't like overly touchy feely, I would say. Yeah. And I think maybe that lack of touchy feeliness made people feel like I was being really tough or like really hard. Yeah. I don't know. Is that something that resonates with you? So... Yes, it does. I have a story, but also just to zoom up for a minute, like I have a very strong bias, which I have to check interacting with people. I am drawn to people and I tend to value this orientation, which is super tough on the outside, kinder on the inside versus right. the opposite, right? right? Like kind on the outside and touchy feeling on the outside. Right. But then like a hard not so inside. kind on the inside right. or unfair on the inside. Right. And I still remember a, a story. This is not specifically the Asian, the part, you know, sort of the, the, the cultural aspect, which I can talk about in a minute. But like early on in Teach for America, we had like many startup nonprofits, any non startup. We were that close to going under. One right. Cott talks about in her book, almost went under. Right. But for somebody who last minute helped us save payroll, essentially. And Wendy, the founder, who was again in her early 20s, those tough years, she carried and showed all of it on her, you know, by herself, essentially. She was getting three to four hours of sleep, she talks about in her book. Mm-hmm. She would come into the office after doing an all-nighter, go right to her office, close the door. And I knew what she was doing behind the doors. She was literally on the phone Dialing raising money yeah. so that the staff could continue their hard work that we were all there to do and deliver on our mission. Uh-huh. And so that the staff did not, you know, overnight basically lose their livelihood, too. And I knew it, you know, I had the access to her that I knew what she was doing. The staff, there was a, we had went through rocky cultural times, which often happens during, you know, it all comes together when it rains and pours. And literally where we, you know, she talks about in her books, I can talk about, they wanted to vote her off the island. Mm-hmm. And I came in, I was sort of leading at that point, the national program. And I saw what I felt was such an injustice, you know, mm-hmm. based on lack of information and I felt part of my role beyond the mechanics of running the national program was to improve our culture and to right that ship. It just mm. felt so wrong to me. And so I felt like my job was to get the team to understand, you know, <laughs> and to not place judgment on the wrong things. They said to me, they're like, well, Wendy doesn't even care about us. She walks into the office every day. She doesn't even say hi. She beelines her office, shuts the door. Mm-hmm. And we don't even see her because then she's there well after we leave. And I had to say to them, do you know what she's doing behind those closed doors? It's a lot more fun to chat with you guys. Yeah, right. Right? Any of us want to sit there and I would love to just shoot the breeze with you all. That's fun. She's doing the hard work right now, right? right. You guys have got to give her a little grace. Yeah. And so that's my very strong bias. Yeah. And I, and I, have, and I realized part of what one of my lessons I shared with you, like people are human beings. Mm-hmm. And my, I had been had easy cruising for most of my profession. Mm-hmm. And then I had a role which did not go as well. 
And I had those days where I felt like crap. Mm -hmm. And having had that with hindsight was like a gift. Yeah. Because now I know and understand what it feels like to just feel like crap, you know, (laughs) in a work environment where, and and I needed that, honestly, the slap in the face. Yeah. And I would never forget. And so that helps me be a better leader. Yeah. There was one colleague who's now a friend who worked with me for a while. And I still remember we did a fundraiser. I was the ED of, Teach for America New York. We did a fundraiser for young professionals out in the Hamptons. We did it every year. One of the young professionals at the time who was helping to host it, she was actually hosting the whole thing, love her. She and I interacted more as friends. She wasn't like on my staff. Right. And I tend to bring that demeanor you were talking about, right? Professional. And, right. But then my friends see a whole other side of me. And she was kind of my friend. And when I saw her on the beach, when I arrived, like they gave each other a big hug and, you know, I was Mm -hmm. warm with her. Reshma, my colleague, saw that and she came up to me and she said, you know, I've never seen you like that warm with somebody. I go, the staff needs to see more of that to humanize you. And I'm like, but that's who I am. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you're saying, it's just I, it's all these things where it's like at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And I do think partly the workforce has shifted where like now we're all blending it together, Mm -hmm. which kind of forcing what I think is a much better dynamic. Mm -hmm. But I definitely, and I didn't even realize to what extent I was being perceived as being a more sort of robotic, you know, taskmaster. Right. And I just didn't perceive myself to be that person. And it took a few things like that to like shake it up for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I often share this anecdote similarly because, like, there was this narrative that was going on in my staff about how, like, oh, well, Rhea prefers other, like, she plays favorites. And I thought about it. So it was, like, two things. That, number one, it was because I talked more often in staff meeting about what fundraising was doing because yeah. I just knew what they were doing because I was more involved versus program. Yeah. But then the perception was that, like, I preferred fundraising and I had a preference That's a people. common perception. Of common needs. perception. Yeah. And then the other piece, which is like ironic because I love program, right? Yeah. Like I would But that's the rather... one thing that EDs have to do because yeah. that's, right, if they don't do it, yeah. it's like that needs to be our priority. Right. But so like I, I couldn't like talk about yeah. the work of program very well because I was a bit more removed. But anyway, that was the perception. And then the other perception was interesting was like, I preferred certain people and I realized it was just the people who were on my way to the office who like had desks that were on the pathway. And I just like happened to say hello to those people just because they were in my way, not because I had a preference, but it's like everything you do as a leader is magnified and, and like there's meaning attached to it, even though there is no meaning in your mind. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of like our mothers, right? I yeah. don't want to speak for your mother, but I feel like in general, like no matter how old you are, favorite? well, no matter how old yeah. you are, it's like I could be, I'm like in 52, I'm still dealing with dynamics with my many siblings and my mom and like favoritism and stuff. And I remember reading a story, I think it was the New Yorker a while ago when Bill Clinton was president. And they were, you know, at the time, the president in the US viewed to be the most powerful person in the whole wide world, the entire whole wide world. And it was talking about how the only person who could bring Bill Clinton to take him down was his mother and like how in a world there was like a world leader summit or something he got called because his mom was calling took the call and he came back really upset (laughs) so just saying we could all relate to that right it's like so that amplified effect and I just think we all need to remember 
that we have that disproportionate, we can have a disproportionate impact on people that care about us yeah. and respect us. Okay, last question, because yeah. we're running out of time, yeah. though we can talk for hours. Yeah. I, I know it's going to be hard for you to do, because I know you don't like talking about yourself, but if you could identify one superhero power that you had as a leader, what would that superhero power be? Like one thing that you feel that you do exceptionally well that has been a strength that you've relied on in your career? Sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. I tend to have a pretty strong sense of like, this is why we're here, Mm -hmm. you know? And that, I know it's not a skill, it's not a, but I do think it's something that has kept me, you know, in every role. It's Mm -hmm. been what has given me my strength. It's what has rejuvenated me. It's what's given me direction, Mm -hmm. particularly through like pretty complicated, sometimes, you know, having as I mentioned previously, having done, you know, turnarounds and growth and startups. Mm -hmm. I just think having that North Star to keep me (laughs) on the right course has been really important. Okay, we're going to have you come back because I want to talk about turnaround strategies. Thanks, Iris. So good to have you. (laughs) 